Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Before we start, if this is your first time listening to the 10% Happier podcast, A, welcome. And B, if you like the show, do me a favor. Take a second and subscribe, rate the podcast, and if you really want to hook me up, tell some friends about how they too can find us. Now here's the show. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. My guest this time is somebody whose work I followed for a long time, uh, but never met. And in fact, I, I give I go out, I give a lot of speeches, and when I give speeches, I always talk indirectly about you. Not you, the listener, but you, my guest. Dr. Michael Gervais, goes by Mike, is a sports psychologist who works with athletes. And you have worked quite famously with the Seattle Seahawks. And in my speeches, I always talk about how the Seattle Seahawks have a meditation guy. No kidding. And um, But I've never actually talked to you. <laughs> cool. You've worked with basketball players, golfers, uh, Red Bull, high-performance athletes, extreme athletes, swimmers, snowboarders. But, but let me just first start with um, you. How did you get to meditation? Great question. It was um, – I was a knucklehead growing up. And knucklehead, not in a bad way. But a knucklehead in a way that I, I appreciated the off-access nature of being a human. It's, I just like, I like the contrarian point of view just a bit. Uh, you know, I wasn't a bad kid, but I certainly wasn't one that was following the path that everyone else was following. I grew up in action sports myself, okay. surfing, motocross, um, and I was not good at either of them. You yeah, know, but I, I read a story them. that you, was, you were like kind of too anxious to even enjoy the surfing. Well, that's what happened. That's kind of what set up this trajectory is that... I surfed a lot, like a lot. California kid. California, yeah. I grew up on a farm in Virginia. And then um, I feel like I grabbed some roots about being a human <laughs> that, uh, on a farm and like a really remote farm, not not like a, a a farm that is romantic in any sense, but like a hardworking farm. And my parents kind of dropped out, if you will, and, um, you know, just followed the kind of hippie path and went into a farm in Virginia my dad was still working, but it was very much like a different kind of space. And then surfing took place. They moved west. My, my dad was in corporate America at that time. They moved west, and I fell in love with surfing. And I was decent. I was a good little kid in, in our neighborhood in the South Bay of Los Angeles. But then as soon as competition took place, when people were watching, and there was like, you know, girlfriend or parents or friends or whatever on the beach watching, I was a disaster. And I knew that there was not my talent. It was not my skill levels. It wasn't my physical body, but I couldn't feel my physical body. I couldn't feel my feet. I'm not making it up. Like I really was disconnected mm. from my surfboard and my feet. It's because I was up in my head worrying about how I would look and what, what would happen if it went wrong and all that, all that just noise. And so that led me down the path to be curious about this thing, this invisible thing called the mind. Did somebody take you aside one day and say, hey, you ought to meditate? No, it had nothing to do with meditation. So <clears throat> now I'm painting a picture that I'm about 15, 16 in mm -hmm. that range. And so high, high school still. And there was, there was another competitor. He was a, a grown man. And he's competing against me. And he says, Gervais, you got to – I surf with him every day. We know how each other can surf. And so he paddles by me and he says in the midst of a competition, says, Gervais, you got to stop worrying about what could go wrong. And I thought for a moment like – Jesus, yeah. <laughs> How does he know? That's exactly what I'm doing. And so I was, I was a mess and he knew it. And so he didn't tell me like a good competitor. He didn't tell me what to do. But so I just sat there for a moment in the water, bobbing up and down, waiting for the next wave. And I was like, well, if I'm not supposed to be thinking about 
what could go wrong, what is the best thing to think about? So I started imagining, just doing this imagination thing about what could go right. I didn't know that that was such a thing called performance imagery. I had no idea. So I'm sitting out by myself, you know, in this 60-degree temperature, a little bit cold, uh, very anxious. And then I just started imagining how I wanted to experience the next wave. That set me on a completely different path. But I had no idea there was this thing called psychology. I'm just, I'm, I'm literally at that point wet behind the ears. I did not know about science. I didn't know, I didn't know about things. My parents, like, did the, God love them, did the best job they knew how to raise uh, an off-access, kind of risk-taking, young, intelligent enough kid to be able to get himself out of trouble. What do you mean by off-access? Just, I, I enjoy seeing things from, like, a, the different point of view than, than, mainstream i guess it would in off literally off access in action sports is you know when um olympians go down a hill uh, uh ski jumpers when they go down a hill and and they flip in like triple quadruple flips and rotations and it's pure and it's beautiful and it's crisp and they land squarely okay then action sports came along and they said god that, that stuff's crazy but what if i put a little kink in it and instead of rotating um, exactly 90 degrees, what if I get off access and I throw my butt into it and then I throw, I cork my head around and it just looks totally different. Mm. So that off access, like it's just a, I don't know, that, that's the way that I think about off, mm. off access, just a little bit of a cork in it. I got it. So uh, the, I didn't know anything even about college at that point. I, my life was not pursuing that direction. I just knew that the mind was rad and I wanted to figure it out. Did mm. you get, become a better surfer? Yeah. I mean, just because I was putting in blood, sweat, and tears, and there was no coaching. But the visualization, did that help? Yeah, it did help. And then looking back with hindsight, this is all with hindsight, because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But I remember thinking, if I think, wow, I feel better when I think about how it could go well. And that thought really did change a lot for me. But don't you need to think about how it could go wrong Well, some level? Excessive thinking about what could go wrong creates anxiety. Okay, so... There is a certain amount of stress that is useful. Distress and eustress are two different concepts. Distress and? Eustress, E-U. So eustress meaning good. Euphoria. Yeah, exactly. Euphemism, E-U. Uh, so uh, so there is, I mean, for me, mindfulness, as uh, sh- I should just say that we're doing a doubleheader today. So Michael has his own podcast called Finding Mastery. Um, and so we, we just did an interview for Mike's um, podcast where he interviewed me. So now I'm interviewing him. But in our previous conversation just now in my office, one of the things I was explaining to you is, is that I think there's a certain amount of stress that's useful, but mindfulness meditation helps you draw the line between useful stress and useless stress. So I agree with what you're saying, but I, ju- I, I just suspect that a lot of my type A anxious listeners, their response to your story about, oh, I was worrying about what could go wrong. I think a lot of people will say, don't you need to do some of that? And you're just saying, yeah, you do need to do some, but I was doing too much. Yeah, so it was excessive. Right. It was so excessive. Then the part of that story I think is really important is I couldn't connect to my body. And so certainly I couldn't connect to my craft, the thing I wanted to do and to be able to creatively express like I couldn't do the thing that I knew I could do. That is painful. And it's only because of how much noise I had in my head about what other people would think of me. Now, this is all in hindsight, you know, like it's really clear now. At the time, it felt like I was just trying to survive. I just need to play it safe and play it small and I'd be okay. But that sucks. Like that's no way to live. And I knew I had so much more to be able – and again, mind you, like when I talk about surfing, I'm fortunate enough to know some of the best in the world. (laughs) We play different sports. (laughs) You know, what they do is like ridiculous. 
but but feeling small and just feeling like this is awful although i loved it i loved surfing but the state of mind i was in was awful that's the excessiveness of thinking too much about what could go wrong and so the visualization did break it open for you were you able to improve well yeah in that moment what happened was it was just like this disruptive thought that worked that competitor that I was just talking about disrupted my thinking in a way that gave me a way that I could pivot or I could say it and pivot to, well, what's good? Or I could have said, yeah, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And I could have just kept doing the thing I'm doing. So it just created this nice little moment, disruptive moment. And then I entertained or explored the other side of it, which was what could go well. Yeah, it helped. It helped in that moment. The next wave felt right. And so that I just got like, I don't want to say addicted. That's not the right word. I just paid attention to what just happened. What happened next? What in your trajectory? I still didn't I didn't master anything. <laughs> I was like I was still trying to figure out what did I just do? Why did that work? Could I do more of that meaning the imagery. So the next immediate thing was like, wow, there's something happening here. I don't know what that is. But I didn't know who to talk to about it. I didn't know where to go read about it. So I just kept trying to figure it out myself. But I was still not doing school well enough. Um, I was bored, not interested, and I wanted to surf more. And so it was my senior year, and my mom pulled me aside and we're in my kitchen. She said, you know, you've got two options now. Either you're going to need to move out and get a job or go to community college because you, you, you didn't take your SATs, you didn't take your PSATs, you, didn't barely, you barely kind of got through school. So you don't have any other options, and it's one of those two things. And then there's another pause because I'm waiting for her to make it better. <laughs> and she says, you really thought you were going to live here and surf for the rest of your life, didn't you? <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't know. Like, it's pretty good. And so um, I said to myself quietly, I said, I know I can go to school and surf a lot. So I'll try this community college thing. And then there's two community colleges. One was like a um, one was right by a, a great surf break and one was kind of more in the city, if you will. And the one by the Great Surf Break cost some money. It was a private junior college. And the one in the city was public. And I said, I need to go to the private one, right? I didn't know what private public meant. I had no idea what that – I really had no idea. But I knew it was right near a good surf break. And so I was going to figure out how to surf and go to school. And my parents said, okay, listen, we'll figure this out. But you need to pull in good grades. So that's the only way this is going to work. We're not going to do this thing again. So I remember going to school saying, all right, well, let me just see if I can surf a little bit more. And um, what ended up happening is I f there was three professors. One was a theologian, one was a philosopher, and one was a psychologist. And those guys, um, they taught me to fall in love with being fascinated with the invisible. They put their arms around me metaphorically and uh, challenged me, and I loved it. And no one ever had to ask me to read a book again. you know. And I just, I just, it just lit me on fire trying to figure out how does this freaking mind thing work? And what is the meaning of life? Like, what are these mystics and spiritual leaders trying to sort out? So you, did you cut down on your surfing? Yes and no. Um, I actually, I increased my anxiety. And so, yeah, I know it's not supposed to go this way. But I was in a relationship um, with a woman who I ended up marrying. And we dated since high school, on and off, on and off, more on, obviously, than off, or that relationship doesn't work well. And I didn't know this at the time, but I was waking up trying to do too much before breakfast. And I was, it wasn't doing, it was, I was thinking about what I want to do in school, how I was going to surf, how I was going to, you know, be in a relationship, how I was going to have fun, what I was going to do tonight, 
all of the stuff that I was trying to sort out, I guess high school kids are trying to figure out schedule and how to study. I didn't know either of those. And I wanted to surf. I wanted to study and I wanted to be in a relationship and I want to have fun. So I remember looking back now, my hands shaking while I was brushing my teeth. So I went up to Dr. Cusio, the psychology professor, and we're in the middle of the, the college campus. And he said, I said, Hey, do you have a minute? He goes, yeah, what's up, Mike? And this is like semester two. Like we don't know each other, but I'm inspired. Like I'm really inspired by him. And I said, Hey, I'm having a really hard time. And he goes, okay, what's up? And he's, I said, um, like, it's really hard. I'm really anxious right now. And my hands are shaking. And I said, look, and I showed him my hands and I'm kind of sweating and kind of anxious. And he just stopped me and he looked at me and he interrupted the conversation and he said, when your doorbell rings, do you have to answer it? And then he walked away. I was like, these freaking psychology people are weird. Like what, what? And so I, I was like agitated. And so I didn't know what he meant. That was just weird. That's just odd. Like I went home a little agitated and I'm still anxious and agitated. And the next day I saw him again. I said, Hey doc, do you have a minute? And he goes, yeah, what's up, Mike? And I said, Hey, I don't think I translated this right. I'm kind of a mess right now. And he stopped and he looked at me again. He said, when your phone rings, this is before cell phones, when your phone rings, do you have to answer it? And he did the same thing. He walked away. You're a lot smarter than I am, Dan. I mean, like, I don't know where he's going with it. No. <laughs> so, so I said, I got to figure this thing out. So I had a chance to talk to him about it another time. And he said, listen, just because something is interrupting your flow, whatever that is, you don't have to entertain it. And the door knocking and the phone ringing was an analogy for your thoughts, you know, thoughts that were getting in the way of whatever it is that you're doing. Great little story, great little thing. And it was disruptive to me. Disruptive, not in a pejorative, in a good way. In a good way. You use that word in a good way. Yeah, yes. like being disruptive, like... Changing your paradigm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there I am. And so I'm like, oh, I don't have to answer the door. I don't have to entertain the thoughts. But the thoughts that I was thinking a lot about were all about what could go wrong. Not, not, I'm not doing a, like a, a what-if analysis. That would be smart. Come to find out as a little kind of point or asterisk in this part of the conversation is that science would suggest to us now that what if scenarios are, they're good, but less potent than imagery, than performance success-based imagery, even outcome-based imagery. Mm. So um, it's just the meandering and the wandering and the, the wildness of those stories in our own mind that get us twisted, change our physiological state, and create a sense of um, internal civil war that is not needed. And it's only because my mind was undisciplined. And I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a le uh, someone to teach me about it. And I was just a knucklehead kid trying to figure it out. How did you discipline the mind? So that, now we're getting into like the stuff that you and I are going to appreciate, I think, even more, is that I didn't know how to discipline it. So I studied it. And um, I was becoming more interested in the field of psychology, the science of it. So I graduated from Loyola Marymount uh, in an undergraduate degree in psychology. After the junior college. After the junior college. And um, so what do I do next? And I asked uh, a mentor at the time of mine, like, what do you think? And he said, keep going. Like, this is easy. This is good for you. Like, keep going. So I, I enrolled in, uh, was accepted, then enrolled in Pepperdine University in a master's degree program in uh, psychology. But it was the study of dysfunction, disorder. It was the study of what was broken about the human mind. And on the second semester, I was like, I can't study the brokenness of the human. Now, God love anyone that does. Like, we need that. We do need that. 
but it wasn't a good fit for me. And so I dropped out and my mentor at the time said, um, Michael, there's this field, like it's kind of new, but there's this field of psychology that has something to do with sport. Maybe you should check that out. So I thought, ooh, there you go. So that that trajectory then took place. So a master's in kinesiology in um, and kinesiology is a big fancy word for the study of muscles and motion, that, but there's not enough there for me. So I went back and got a PhD in psychology with an emphasis in sport, and it just so happened that the university had um, a Tibetan psychology program as well. And it was just like convergence of great minds in the field. So I took a shot, and it was great. I loved it. I loved every part of it. And they had t- Tibetan psychology there too? Yeah, acro- like acro- literally across the hall was a Tibetan psychology program. So I, I tell this story, and this is more of a romantic storytelling than kind of actual concreteness. But day one, of course, it wasn't day one, but like day one, there's all these kind of jock clinical research based, you know, budding professionals. Right. And across the hall are all of, all of these spiritual process based folks that are dressed very differently. <laughs> you know, they've got lots of orange, you know, like it's just very, very different. And I remember thinking that. You know, that's really that's really amazing that they've dedicated their life to this, but someone's going to take their lunch money. (laughs) (laughs) And so and I'm sure they were thinking about us that, um, you know, what's going to happen is uh, those guys are going to get the outcomes that they want, but they'll be lost. But by the end of the four years, it was like this thing that took place where outcome and process blended for me at least where in there i know somewhere in there you started to meditate how and why did that okay, happen? so that that's where that's where i'm getting to so so the tibetan psychology program walt rutherford was the the, the head of that program he would just lead every class we'd sit down in a normal oh, class so you started taking classes in the tibetan with the tibetan no 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 he, he also taught like group psychology and he taught okay. a couple other classes as I well see. he was a psychologist that was a vietnam vet that uh, found buddhism and so he's the director of the program. I don't, I don't know any of this at the time. And so we, sat, we started every class. And he says, okay, everyone, close your books, sit back in your chair, put your feet on the ground, and uh, just follow me. He started every class meditating. So I was like, <laughs> it just happened. And I was like, oh, that's, that felt pretty good. And then he'd talk about it for a few minutes. It was like six minutes, you know, no big deal. And then we'd riff on that for a few minutes, and then we'd get into science. And that was every class. And then so he was the first person that showed me really in a sophisticated, thoughtful, formalized way how to be a man and express emotion. And so he taught me a lot, more than he probably uh, would you know, recognize. Mm. And so I was just really attracted to that. You know, He made really difficult decisions in war, came back not the same person that he went to and struggled. And he struggled with his thoughts and he struggled with his emotions. At least that's the way I understood his story. And he found Buddhism. And, and, but he also had a science appreciation as well. And what did, what did the six minutes a day of that do for you? Why did you like it and how did it grow from there? Looking back now, what it did, it just closed all the mental files that were open and running. I would just settle in and I could get to the signal, whatever that was, whatever that meant for that day. And all the noise was just fading away. And so it was moments of peace and it happened faster than I thought. So then um, I just started doing it more and more and more and more. And then I had a surfing accident where um, I uh, had two hot discs. One popped out and one popped in in my C-spine, my upper neck. And um, it stopped everything. I couldn't move basically. You know, I wasn't paraplegic or quadriplegic. 
paraplegic. I, I, it wasn't that bad, but the burn, the chronic burn between my shoulder blades was unbelievable. And so um, I started to turn that meditation into healing imagery because none of the traditional modalities were working. And I actually have an interesting pre-MRI and post-MRI of imagery. Um, and uh, it was working. It was physically changing the structure of my anatomy. So that's I, a pretty big claim. I, I don't talk about it because people think I'm crazy. Like I, I get that exact response that you just had. Like it sounds kooky. Um, but I don't talk about it often because – No surgery. No, I didn't need surgery. So no. the visualization was the only thing that did it. Well, so I was Time. I was doing everything, heat, ice, stem, acupuncture. I couldn't get enough massage and soft tissue work. And what I realized after 18 months is the doc said um, – he said, I think it's time for surgery. I can't remember. It was 20-something. I was like, I'm not getting neck surgery. I'm too young. Like I just got to figure this thing out. And so I said, give me another 30 days. This is about 18 months in. And mind you, at that time, I was looking for everything outside of me to heal me. I, I mean, it was like as soon as someone put their hands on me, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm going to get this relief. And I didn't do my own work. I was kind of like a phony. Mm. I was studying it a lot. Every once in a while doing you know, stuff with, with uh, Dr. Rutherford Walt and not doing enough of it to really feel the difference. And that's so I said, hey, doc, um, give me 30, 30 days for a second MR, MRI. He goes, okay. He looked at me like, okay, whatever, Jure. And so he gave it to me, popped it back up. And I can talk about what I saw in the imagery, but I don't know if that's important. But post on the second MRI, um, that little piece of matter that was pushing against my spinal cord um, was gone. But there was a little calcium buildup of where it once was. So I said, I didn't want to sound crazy in front of uh, this, this medical professional. I said, what do you think happened? He said, well, I don't know. It, sometimes they just move. I said, well, and then, so then I hit the panic button again. I said, do you think it moved up or below the, the picture that we took? He goes, no, not like that. But sometimes the body just eats them up. But that was what I was seeing. That's what I was seeing in my mind. I had these Mickey Mouse hands that were spiritually fueled. I'm not crazy, okay? <laughs> They're spiritually fueled. I don't know where this and came were from. Were you making this, um, this Ma meditation was, up? Yeah, kind of making it up. And, and how long, how much of it were you doing? Well, there was a very fringe research on healing meditation you know, or healing imagery. And so I was kind of pulling from some fringe science, which is uncomfortable for me to say. But um, so it was 17 minutes a day. That was like my tolerance. And if my wife was here, she'd be like, yeah, it was pretty consistent. Every night, 17 minutes, sitting in my little apartment. And just seeing these little infused Mickey Mouse glove hands, um, a little bit wet, and the structure of my body, I was seeing it like um, the water was like removing layers of clay on that little piece of matter that was flo floating around my spinal cord. I get why you don't tell the story. It, it sounds yeah, crazy, tough, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, but it but it happened. So what are you what are you going to do? Well, yeah, and so for a long time I didn't talk about it because it sounds so. I don't know, woo-woo and out there and whatever. And so I just kind of ignored it and kept it myself and doubled down on science. I mean, the, the, I'll just go back to what I said. Uh, that's your experience. Like, it happens. So yeah. it's, it's hard to argue with. Um, but let me ask you this. Walt, who was teaching how to meditate in class, that's right. what, what kind of meditation was he teaching you? What, what were the mechanics of that meditation? And were you doing that too? Yes. Yeah. So that was how I was... Starting, he taught us um, basic who am I, contemplative work, and then um, uh, very much single point focus, but just relentlessly follow your breath. <laughs> you know, just keep going. And 
did those varieties of meditation blossom for you? Did you keep doing those mm-hmm. that stuff too? Yeah, I did. And um, just because it felt like I was figuring things out, that's what it felt like. But it's not like all of a sudden you're different. It, no. No. It's yeah. like – but I feel it's a little bit uh, – the image that comes to mind is you've had a toothache or you've had something like that is a chronic pain or something that's bugging you right now. And if you get going with the rest of your life um, that day and you look back and go, whoa, I had a toothache early in the morning. Well, it's kind of gone. It feels as though the the duration of mindfulness work is has led me to not have that toothache that I had as a kid, which was all that angst and all that anger. That's how I worked it out. I was I was a pissed off little kid, not, not little kid, but uh, adolescent, and that's how I worked it out. But so it just feels like that pain, that ache, uh, in that way is just it's just not as intense anymore. So would you tell somebody just back to your visualization story? Would you tell somebody who's got a real back issue to visualize it away or would you just say this worked for me yeah i don't even bring it up because it i, I tried it a couple of times with athletes and i've talked a few a little bit with athletes about it and i throw it out there like hey listen um there's something weird that that took place i can't quite explain it but i want to tell you a story about healing imagery which is totally on the fringe of science so i always make sure that i'm anchoring it uh, accordingly i tell the story um to some folks but then what i realize is that it it's so out there that it set up this thing where they weren't sure that they were good enough, skilled enough of the mind to get that to happen. Mm. So it's almost like it was setting up this um, – the ceiling was too high yeah. now. And so I don't even talk about it really. But I, if it happened to me again and I had this chronic thing, thousand percent I'm, I'm doubling down on um, using my mind. Here's the, here's, here's the way I work with it. Your body, my body right now is trying to heal. That's what it's doing. Right? We stress it all day long with thinking, with doing, and it's so sophisticated that it's trying to recover as fast as it possibly can. So if that's the case, and recovery we know on the world stage is equally if not more important than stress, intelligent stress, smart training, and intelligent recovery is the name of the game. Right, And so if your body's trying to recover right now, then if I just quiet my mind and focus so I'm not stressing it even more with noise, internal noise – and I then move my mind's attention to focusing on the thing that I want most inside of my body, I think that, that there's something there that's working. After a quick break, you're the guy who works with the Seattle Seahawks. So when you walk into a locker room and say, hey, famous, enormous homo sapiens, uh, you <laughs> should meditate, how does that go? Yeah, it didn't go like that. After this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com. 
slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Fast. Hey, what's this? The solution for your pain. Lidocare pain patch? Yep, the only non-water-based patch on the market blocks pain for up to eight hours. So it gives me eight hours of pain relief and stays dry? That's right. It's patent-pending technology, so it really is one of a kind. It says here it's odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light. The Lidocare pain patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. So you're studying to be a sports psychologist. You also happen to be a meditator. And then you go out into the world and you start working as a sports psychologist and you want to introduce meditation to your clients. I didn't. You didn't. Oh, no. well, this is my question because you started meditating before it was cool. Yeah. This is a long time ago. What? 1999. 1999. Okay. Yeah. So definitely before it was cool. Yeah. Um, how did you start using it with your patients? Yeah, I don't. What's the right term? Patients? Yeah, clients? I like it that you just picked that up on that. Is that I don't call them patients. Um, I call them Athletes. Athletes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I even hesitate saying that because they're people. Yeah. You know, and they're inspired people that are wanting to change the way uh, the world works, wanting to change the way they work. And so it's like highly motivated, driven, you know, kick people. And but, so when you propose meditation to these people, do they, they look at you like you're crazy? Mm, I didn't bring it up. You didn't? No, for same things, I didn't bring up the other stuff. Like it yeah. seems crazy. Yeah. And um, I didn't have that ability to say this was the game changer because I was doing the traditional clinical training route and there was no, I didn't know of any science around it. So I, you know, feel like I'm over indexing on the importance of science, but it's so important as a guiding principle for me that um, as well as the human spirit, which we can't see, we can't measure. So I'm always toggling back and between those two. So I first indexed on wanting to understand the person in front of me. And investing a lot of time on that with high regard, just wanting to understand. And then I indexed on, let me strike that. The, the, the thing that I spent most time was trying to understand the person. And then I thought I was the really smart person that would um, find just the right tool for the right person at the right time. And I'd use that good science to say, oh, you know what? Well, it sounds like imagery is right for you. It sounds like self-talk or it sounds like a cognitive restructuring or blah, 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 what all that stuff is. And then I realized like that, that I'm giving them a tool but they didn't necessarily ask for it. They, they want it, but maybe, you know, it was just clunky. So, you know, then the movement started, like, people have their own answers. We've all been successful at times similar to the thing we're trying to sort out now. But maybe we're not clear exactly how we got there and what exactly we did. So then these conversations I was having with people was just really trying to help them reveal their wisdom, their insight. Their so practices. You, you said before we started recording, you said there's a difference between advice and what you do. Yeah. Well, a lot of people say, give me some advice, Doc. And I am I'm, I think that how dare I give you advice and I've never lived a day in your shoe. 
So you just try to suss out of them their own answers and wisdom. Yeah, and it's working from a framework. Like it really is working from a mindfulness approach, which is um, we don't go find wisdom. We reveal it. And so revealing our internal wisdom is the path. And um, challenges and tests and moments of intensity reveal the command we have of ourselves. And there's times when we have zero command. And we have attacks that are really uncomfortable. And there's times where we're substandard to being able to control and have command of our mind and our craft and our body. And that pain, hopefully, is real so that we invest more deeply in being a whole human so that we can um, train our mind, our body, maybe our spirit and our craft to be able to do the things that we want to do consistently and consistently well. So you said initially you weren't talking about meditation with people, but ultimately, obviously, you did. So what changed that? Yeah, great, great question, because there wasn't one thing that unlocked it. But I do think that when I just ran out of like, it didn't feel whole trying to help people just have mental tools and skills. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think they're great. Like understanding the mechanics of confidence and how, how confidence really works is really important. And mindfulness won't teach you that. Mindfulness doesn't teach the mechanics of confidence. And it doesn't teach the right way to build confidence. It teaches something maybe deeper which is accept who you are and f by figuring out who you are, who am I? And so that's really rich and deep. That takes a long time. And when people need to respond on command in a hostile or rugged environment, they also need to, I think, need to have such a command of where their mind goes that they can place it right in the right way. And um, I can hear some of my teachers saying, Mike, just help them be fluid and say hello and goodbye to their thoughts, which is all great. Yeah, that's kind of mindfulness. Yeah, that is mindfulness, yeah. right? Yeah, and the other part is like, yeah, well, what, what is a good thought for this moment? And then I hear my other, some of my teachers saying, did you say good thought? Like that's a judgmental term, you know? And so there's this ebb and flow between judgment and non-judgment and ease and fluidity and accuracy. And I think there's a, there's a combination of the two of mindfulness and skills that help People um, perform and be in calm moments and rugged moments. So it was a cocktail of factors, and it happened slowly that allowed you to start introducing this practice that was a benefit to you, to the people you, with whom you were working? Yeah. So it was like this – the cocktail was really um, me honoring that this was this – was, mindfulness made a big difference in my life. And I need to share and talk about it more. And it also helped that great athletes – they're present. They're, and they're also looking for every advantage. They can every get. advantage. But here's the question. Yeah. You said before you don't give advice. That's right. So if you want to propose something like meditation, isn't that advice? Yeah. So it, it sounds a little something like this to me. They'll say things like, Mike, how are you so grounded? And I'll say, well, I don't know. I've worked at it. Well, how do you work at it? Well, okay. Uh, I see. You know, and so, um, or, you know, damn, you know, X person over there, like, it looks like they got it all together. And then so we'll just talk about what they're looking for. And they'll say, you know, I'm just looking to be grounded. I'm looking to have, you know, say, okay, well. What do you think people mean by grounded? Um, having weight. So having weight means like for me it conjures up this idea of fullness but just being rooted where if when I'm anxious it feels like the like a weeble wobble but flipped upside down, right? Like my head is bigger somehow than my, my base. So like sometimes you meet people and their eyes are flitting around, they're looking over your shoulder, they're looking at their phone, you don't feel like they're with you. That's, That's right. not grounded. That's ungrounded. That would certainly be ungrounded. And then 
And that's an L- every L.A. party, isn't it? Yeah. I don't go to a lot of L.A. parties. I don't go to a lot of parties. But, me, yes, I've seen it. Yeah, me, I try not to. But that, that's what it feels like. But then even if no one else is around, there's – and you have it. You're grounded. So I would – like how did you do it? You know, like you, you have weight about you. And the analogy that I was going to talk about is like I don't know. Have you ever been in a fist fight? I don't know that. <laughs> uh, two times in my life somebody's punched me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't fight back because I was on the ground. Did, um, oh, did you get knocked out or down? Not uh, no. I, actually, in neither case did I get knocked down. Actually, I think uh, I was just stunned, and then everybody around intervened. Yeah, that's what happens, yeah. right? Um, did you know you were going to get punched? No. Okay, so there's a moment right before you're about to get into a fight. I'm not advocating violence by any means, but it was it was the way that I knew how to deal with my anxiety. And so there's weight that comes in that moment when it's real. And so it's like your hips drop and there's a heaviness that comes in that moment. Mm. And that heaviness is – and I don't, I don't encourage violence by any means. I don't think it's useful. But moments that are really intense where you could become really hurt, whether that's the backcountry skiing in heavy environments or that saying something that is authentic in a boardroom – or sharing something that's intimate but truthful and difficult to say to a loved one, those moments, either you flutter and kind of move away out of fear, or you drop your hips and you own it. And it's that weight that I'm trying to put words and images to. Gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. So once you did, once it, once it started to happen that you were you were talking about meditation with the, with the folks, the athletes with whom you were working, how'd that go down? Because like you're the guy who works with the Seattle Seahawks. So when you walk into a locker room and say, hey, guys, uh, famous, enormous homo sapiens, uh, you <laughs> should meditate. How does that go? Yeah, it didn't go like that. Okay. Uh, the way it went is um, the culture at the Seattle Seahawks um, begins and ends with Coach Carroll. Yeah, Pete Carroll. Yeah, Coach Pete Carroll. And so Pete Carroll and I have rich conversations about the mind. And how to optimize and put in systems and strategies and language and and he's really good at it. And he's got a history of you know paying attention to mindfulness as well. And is he a meditator? Well, I, you have to ask him. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I'm grinning when I say that because maybe that's a good conversation for you at some point. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk. To you. Yeah. So um, that being said, so we have a really great conversation. Now, the way that it works, I think most. Um, most eloquently is when it's organic. And so you might have a different approach with this. I don't know. But organic conversations that happen where people want to know more and they're open and they're already there rather than like, okay, everyone grab a seat. Mm. We're going to go through lesson mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Like 95% of the room's like, forget about it. Yeah. You know, so it's not that by any means. And so it's organic. It's hallway conversations. It's a small kind of conversations happening off the field, walking, you know, walking into the locker room, walking out on the field. It's like really organic. And um, it starts with uh, the coaches. And so talking about what do some of the best in rugged environments and hostile environments, Mike, what have you learned? And so it's a learning environment there. And so what have you learned? And so then we just talk. Then we talk about all the things that they've learned, I've learned. And then then those conversations just kind of spread but so you, here, here's something that yeah. I, on this thought is that – so then ESPN got wind of it. This is probably the article you read. Yeah. And um, – Yeah, I had the quarterback on the front cover. Yeah. In lotus position. Yeah. Russell Wilson. Russell yeah. Wilson. And 
we we got a whiplash from that internally. Like it, it did. It the word meditation all of a sudden everyone whipped into that. That was the reason the Seahawks were successful, which is not accurate. The the reason the Seahawks Seahawks are successful is because the talent they work their off. The great coaches, they're strategic and excellent. The head coach creating a culture, the GM creating, uh, finding great talent, the scouts working their ass off to figure out the right fits, you know, the, the nutrition program, the S&C, the strength and conditioning, the medical crew. It's so many moving parts that that's why they're successful. Not to mention an owner who like really wants to help and support uh, successful platforms. But the article didn't say it was all meditation. In fact, yeah. it wasn't a huge part of it. I think it was. I mean, what the, the, the image on he the front... He talked about the culture, though, in yeah, the article. Yeah, he did. Yeah, they, they, um, they did. But the athlete was sitting lotus. Yeah, well, that's true. So the imagery has overpowered the words. Certainly. Because if you look at the article, this is from ESPN, the magazine, 2010, I think. Yes. And I use the image of Russell Wilson in my PowerPoint. Yeah, there you so go. When I go over, the, I use that picture. Yeah. And Russell Wilson is seated in lotus position on the front of the magazine. Very, very powerful that's image. Right. Yeah. But if you read that magazine article, of my, and I just reread parts of it this morning in preparation for talking to you, it really talks about the culture of the organization and how it's a very different kind of team. Yeah, that, that's like, that. I'm glad you picked that up. Because that's exactly kind of the right way, I think, um, that feels organic and, and honest about what's happening. The, the athletes are phenomenal. The coaches are amazing. And the culture creates enough space for people to um, celebrate who they are. And so that, that is not because of meditation. That is because of um, a bunch of humans that want to figure out how to be their very best. And that, that part of the conversation starts with Pete, Pete Carroll, Coach Carroll, saying – Listen, guys, this is how I think it will look to be amazing for us. You know, there's a particular style to the Seahawks, and that message runs through that you got to compete to be your very best. And that begins and ends with, you know, his mission. So I understand there are lots of variables. I totally get that. Right. But when, as it pertains to mindfulness, how do you work with an athlete, and how do you think mindfulness practice, meditation, whatever you want to call it, helps an athlete? So training is important. And so that's why mindfulness training feels like it's something different than meditation. Right. When really you could replace the same, those words. Right. We, in, you, you, in our prior conversation on your podcast, we were talking about, because I talk about meditation, you call it mindfulness training. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, mindfulness slash meditation, you know, we can use those same words. It, it, they conjure up something different. Meditation conjures up granola, Birkenstocks, tree hugging, um, trying to change that, man. I'm Buddhism. trying to change Yeah, and that. I want to yeah. support you in changing that. And so the, the way that I'm doing it, and it's funny based on our previous conversation. So I use the word mindfulness and training, and I put those two things together. That's not unique. That's just the way it works in alpha competitive environments. And when they talk about it, sometimes they, meaning athletes or coaches, talk about mindfulness. But oftentimes they just call it what it is. Meditation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so um, it's an exciting time for it. The science is, is burgeoning. And it's exciting to see what's happening. And um, people that are cool are talking about it. And, when you, and the science must be useful for you as a, for lack of a better term, sales tactic, like um, not in terms of peddling your wares to various teams. I mean, when you're talking to an individual athlete, to be able to say, hey, look, this, there's a significant amount of science here that shows yeah, it that does this, help. Good, this can change your brain. But, but, but back to my question, well, how, does it, how does mindfulness training, to use your uh, hmm. uh, language, Help an athlete by helping them become more aware, and so awareness is so. There, if there's two pillars, as I've come to understand, and 
I've also come to understand that there's so much to know that I won't begin to pretend like being the person that holds the information here. Um, Because I know you've been deep into this path. That If there's two pillars, there's um, awareness and the second pillar being insight and wisdom. And maybe you call them three, but I call them two, right? And so awareness of what? Thoughts, awareness of emotions, awareness of how your body is experiencing this moment, and then awareness of the unfolding environment. And so if we just stopped there, athletes or performers or people would be better at their, their craft. So that's the first kind of mechanism. There, there isn't a coach or athlete that doesn't recognize or nod their head, especially on the world stage that says, oh, yeah, the, the inner, the, the mental game is important. And so what does that mean? It means that thoughts impact performance. I want to have great thoughts. Okay. Well, you know, here's, here's a way that um, there's great research. There's lots of people that have been doing it for thousands of years. The samurai warriors were attracted to the Zen traditions. And, you know, here's what it looks like. When the rubber hits the road, what does it look like? What is the practice that you teach and how is it useful in acute moments? If you imagine a heavyweight boxer in a gym, right, large human being, and he needs to stand toe-to-toe with another human being, and there's nowhere to go. I have such respect for all martial arts because there's nowhere to go, (laughs) right? And so it's you with another skilled human being um, in a small environment. And they all know that it's heavy bags important. To hit the heavy bag is an important part of training. And, of course, there's philosophical differences on when and how much and all that good stuff. But if you were to ask a heavyweight boxer – or any boxer for that matter, um, hey, do you hit the heavy bag? And he says, yeah, when I'm walking out to the car, like I'll hit it a few times and then walk out. Well, that's not training. Like that's just hitting it a couple times. So it's like the saying, you know, do you pay attention to your thoughts? Yeah, every once in a while, you know, I kind of, I kind of think about it. That's not training. So discipline training just feels like there's some sort of a commitment and a consistent commitment to either single point or contemplative kind of wandering um, meditation or mindfulness work. And so it's like the discipline is like structuring a particular amount of time. And maybe it's one minute. Maybe it's 10 breaths. Maybe it's three minutes. If you can do one, you can do three minutes. (laughs) Maybe it's we double down and get to six where research is starting to suggest that at about six minutes, we're starting to see some changes. Maybe you can work your way up to what optimal doses would be if you're following this kind of science route, you know, 20 minutes. And so it just looks like that. It's a progressive model of staying more, spending more time in a quality way connected to one breath at a time. And how do you see you, so you work with somebody like Russell or these great athletes. How do you see, what what kind of impact does it have on them? What are they reporting to you about what it does for their performance? Well, once we're aware of our thoughts, then we can adjust and we can be swift with that adjustment and come back to now more often. So excellence happens now. It happens in the present moment. And if there is a string that pulls together a human potential, if there's a string that binds human potential, it's stringing together moments. And the more moments that we can be fully here now, it increases the frequency of us being able to access our craft at a high level. I'm not finding the the best way to say that right now, but the idea is that if I can, if somebody can increase the amount of time that they're spending in the present moment, and because of that, they can adjust more eloquently and swiftly to whatever the demands are, they're going to be able to access their craft at a higher rate, at a, at more successfully. And then if you get a string a bunch of those moments together, you might just get glimpses or and or touch your potential. So let me just see if I can throw out a hypothetical situation. I'm Russell Wilson. I just got sacked. 
and I got to get up and do the next play. You know, I want to drive down the field and score a touchdown. If I'm totally drenched in resentment uh, uh, against my uh, defensive line, uh, self-laceration about being in the wrong place or not finding somebody to hit in the field in order to get rid of the ball before I get tackled, um, the next play is going to suck too. So is it about uh, uh, managing the thoughts and emotions in moments like that so that you can be maximally resilient? Yeah, so one play at a time, right? You hear that that thought in sport all the time. And in, in the spiritual frames or spiritual communities around mindfulness, you hear one thought at, or one breath at a time, right? They're no different. And so being aware of wherever your feet are, being present with where your feet are is a necessary ingredient for being able to access your craft and do the thing that you've trained to be able to do. And so, yes, he's sacked, somebody sacked, something happens. If you're going to go to the line of scrimmage with that play in mind and the current play, football and or any sport is happening too fast to try to manage the past, the future, and now. So it's about letting go of the past. Literally, that sounds like a spiritual thing, right? Like a very much of a Buddhist or mindfulness approach. And we talk about letting go of the last play. And so to do what, though? Be here now. And so there's a, there's a requirement in this moment for you, for me, and there's a requirement for athletes in whatever moment they're in. So can we be fully here in this moment? And the greater awareness we have that our mind is thinking about what went wrong just a moment ago or what could go wrong a moment ahead, it's just, it, I don't know, it's just too much noise. It's like you on the surfboard. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. But you're basically over and over helping you on the surfboard. It's unbelievable. So back to Walt one more time. Uh, can I tell you a funny story? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> okay, good. I don't have any rules here. Funny is like, I guess it's according to me. You'll be the, you'll be the determinant <laughs> of funny here. Um, as I'm thinking out loud, it's not that funny, but it's good. Is that So I was really nervous. I, I just graduated. I was kind of done. I was about to get licensed. And I said to Walt, hey, Walt. Now I knew all this theory and everything. I said, well, what do I do if somebody comes into my office and they're like suicidal? Like I know what I'm, the theory suggests, but like really what do I do? He goes, Mike, that's a good question. He goes, do you have any more? I said, yeah, okay, well, what if someone comes in and maybe like I've never dealt with a rape scenario? Like what happens there? He goes, oh, good question. Do you have any more? I said, yeah, how about, well, what about severe depression? You're not sure if they're suicidal or not. And you see where this is going, right? And he goes, yeah, you have any more? Like there's endless, countless scenarios that could happen in our lives. So he just kind of stopped and he looked at me and he said, just everything you need is already inside you and be there for the other person. And everything you need is going to also show up in the chair next to you. So just pay attention. There's money in that. I mean, not, I don't mean literally money, but like that phrase those thoughts have just been really important to me that, yes, I'm still working out that 15-year-old kid, you know, but I've made peace with it, that I didn't know how to do it then. And I'm fortunate enough to work with some of the brightest minds in the world and in craft, whether it's music or arts or, or sport and entrepreneurs, and they're teaching so much. They have so much insight, especially those that know the mechanics of risk. And to be clear, with the I didn't also I didn't realize that you also deal with entrepreneurs and musicians and uh, yeah. high performers in every ax every sphere of life. Mm-hmm. Meditation is just one of the tools you or mindfulness training is just one of the <laughs> tools that you bring to the table. You've got you also dealing with people as a psychologist and talking to them about their past and whatever trauma they may be getting over. No, no, I, yeah, I don't do that. You don't do that. No, no, no. I mean, I'm licensed, you know, and 
I have one to three clients a month. That's just kind of the way the, the business model works for me. And when I sit down with a client, it's eight hours, eight hours in one day. And that's, we go to work. So, but there's no like discussing like your relationship with your mom or anything like that? Mm, maybe a little bit of context, you know, just to get a little bit of context. But if we're always going back to solve something that happened way back, when, when do we focus on like the beauty of the future? When do we focus on, you know, the, the ability to have command now? What do you do over eight hours? Oh, we go to work. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> you're, you're like, like you really want to know. Yeah, huh? I want to know. So I, you don't um, have to give away your secrets. Are free. There's I'm no secrets. Okay. Yeah, there's no secrets by any means. Um, so we'll have, you know, we'll start, start with questions like, um, who are you? What's it like to be you? You know, you're one of the most famous people in the world. What's that like? And, you know, we're just trying to, I'm trying to figure out and he or she is trying to articulate who they are. So we're starting with that, that piece. I'm wanting to understand their psychological framework. And in the back of my mind, I'm trying to sort out, are they pessimistic? Are they optimistic? Are are they lovers? Are they fighters? You know, I'm just trying to sort out like, who is this person? That's the beginning base work. And then I'm trying to sort out what are their strengths? Because that's what we're going to double down on. We're going to index on those. And then we're going to figure out together, like, what are the right ways to amplify, to train your mind to celebrate those strengths that you already come to the world with. So, and you, so you may or may not bring up mindfulness within the context of the day. Usually, yeah. yeah at this point, most people know that um, you're the meditation guy from the Seahawks. Yeah, yeah. That usually comes up. So like you, that's people want that. now. They do want it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a big change, I would that's imagine, a, in your practice. Yeah, yeah. Because initially it was like, how do I talk about this without people thinking I'm a freak? And now it's like, people yeah. come to you for it. Yeah, because remember, like 20 years ago or whatever that was, it was. You know, alpha alpha competitor scenarios, whether it's business or sport, nothing soft really works in those environments. And now this stuff isn't soft. No, it's it's not, st- the military is doing it. I mean, yeah, it's not soft, but it there is flexibility in this. Like, you know, yin and yang, light and dark, hard and soft, whatever, are all required to, to, to build anything beautiful. And so I think that this part of the conversation because it's so challenging, and people know it, we're overloaded right now as a society with external stimulus. So creating space, people are, are hungry to create space to just be still, to be here, to get to know themselves, to reinvent themselves. And I, I think you'll appreciate this is that people aren't sure, am I doing Meditate. Am I doing it? Like I'm, mm. I'm focusing on my breathing, yeah. but am I doing it? It's a huge question. W- what just happened? Yes, it's a huge question. Yeah. Uh, the greatest answer I heard to that was um, David Gellis, who's been on the show before, and he's a re- business reporter for the New York Times. Mm. Um, he's actually a columnist now for the Times, too, a business columnist, and really smart, really driven dude in, in the world. And I once asked him, like, what is your meditation practice? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I try to pay attention to my breath, and when I get lost, I start again. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I mean, and that and is it. That, if you yeah. have a question about are you doing it right? Are yeah. you doing that? Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's exactly it. So, so, so you mentioned to me before we started recording that uh, you had done an interview, you, Pete Carroll, and John Kabat-Zinn at Wisdom 2.0, mm. which is a, a sort of conclave of mindfulness folks that happens on both coasts, but the big ones on the West Coast. Um, and that John Kabat-Zinn, who's like one of the father of modern secular mindfulness, had really honed in on the fact that you guys were teaching meditation in the context of what is often described as a very violent sport. It's on my mind because I recently had on a major general from the U.S. Army and a neuroscientist who was working with said major general to teach mindfulness to troops. 
um, to make them less reactive in the field and, and more resilient when they get home uh, against the scourge of PTSD. But but these two people have been uh, beset by critics from from the Buddhist world. Of, you know, like you're, are you training better baby killers? But what do you? How do you? How do you deal with this question that you get often from sort of more traditional meditation community that while well, our our little practice is being perverted by providing it to violent people? Yeah, that's that's it's a great challenge. That's a great thought and. You know, if we really have, if I think, if we orientate ourselves to have high regard for other people, they're choosing a path. And that path feels, for most people, noble and right. I don't know many people that say, you know what, I'm a bad person. I'm an awful human being that does really ugly things in the world, and I'm trying to make the world worse. <laughs> you know, it's like, so most people are wanting to love life. They're wanting to figure out like how to be better. And some are, you know, struggle with fame and some struggle with needing more money and some struggle with all the trappings that we have as humans. But the sport of football and or boxing or UFC or hockey or basketball in some respects, you know, there's um, physical contact and that contact's intense. There, there is a brutality to combat sports. And there's also something really beautiful about it, not in a twisted way, but to see bodies um, be able to do what they're able to do and to be present, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to learn from that as well. And remember that sport was um, the first origins of sport were to keep warriors ready. All sports were to keep warriors ready in times of non-war. So if you love sport, you are connected to the, you know, some ancient thread of preparing people for violence. And so... I don't know. I would say it's the same thing like the vegan who's wearing leather shoes. You know, it's kind of like, well, if you watch sport, you're connected somehow to the physical form doing things that are difficult to do. And so I don't know. I don't I don't have a challenge with it. Like, I think that they've dedicated their life to their art and their craft and everyone's adults. They've signed up for it. And it is really freaking hard to do what they do. um, This is looping back to something we discussed earlier that – it's often said, or I've heard it said, and maybe you'll, you're the guy who will know, that the difference between a good athlete and a great athlete is mental. Yeah, you, that gets thrown around quite a bit. Is that true, you think? Well, I think on the world stage it is. In recreation sports, not true. Okay. No, right? but I mean good and like Novak Djokovic, for example, is a guy who's a pretty active meditator. He has said, I have heard, that it's really about the point in between points. Um, Isn't that cool? So, yeah. th- so there's again. I, 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 I mean, if you're listening, Novak, a, I want to have you on the show, and b, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but it seems to me that there's something there. I mean, you, everybody yeah. trains, everybody, you know, works out, everybody, you know, if you're in, if you're at Wimbledon, you're a great player, but there's something about the mental game that is the the, the differentiator. Well, yeah. So what's happened is, and I'll, I'll draw a little timeline to help kind of punctuate this. But I think the, the important part of the story is on the world stage, everyone's physically skilled. That's how they, that's like how you got through the ranks at recreation in recreation sports. You just needed to be a little bit bigger, faster, stronger, and you're going to get more exposure and score more points. Right. Then that changes in high school just a little bit, but still that holds true. You know, the bigger, faster kids going to figure it out in college still holds true, but everyone's really pretty good. But in college, you've got some kids that are trying to go pro and some kids that are trying to get a degree. Right. And so there's there's still variance in the pros. Everybody's good, like really good. There is still some variance, but it's really uh, the variance is really small. It's marginal. So a competitive advantage is certainly honoring that there's only three things as humans we can train. We can train our craft. We can train our body and we can train our mind. 
And so if we're going to train just our body and our craft, we're leaving a lot up to chance because good cognitive psychology will suggest that thoughts precede action. And so if that's the case, if that is the case, that thoughts come first, well, let's have great freaking thoughts, whatever that means for you. Let's really honor that those things have consequences. Thoughts have consequences. They create neuroelectrical and, and neurochemical uh, exchanges in the brain, and um, they trigger pattern behavior. So let's get going on it. And it's the competitive mind. That's where sport is fascinating. It's the competitive mind, and not in a bad way, not to like compete to step on somebody's throat or I work with the CEO of a Fortune 100 company that said um, competition to me is to hold my competitor underwater until there's no more bubbles. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's not the kind of competition I'm talking about. The spirit of competition is like, hey, we need each other. Let's go. Let, let's compete together to figure out how good, how far we can take this thing to the limits of the human potential, right? Let's, let, that spirit is really rad. So if, if, if we're going to leave the mind up to chance, we're leaving the doors wide open for someone else to swoop in with a, a, a bit um, more robust and sturdy mind. So um, I think sport has been a great amplifier for valuing the need to be present. And to be excellent in order to be present in order to be excellent. There you go. In that order. Now, are you constrained? I imagine you are by uh, confidentiality. Like, can you talk about some amazing, well-known client and how mindfulness practice ha- training rather has helped them? Or you, can you not do that? So that's why I fired up the Finding Mastery podcast is because because of that license. I'm sorry, the the. Um, the agreement with clients that, hey, we're going to go to work for these, uh, for this extended period of time, that that creates such a late, um, an area of safety that we can talk and explore everything and anything. And then because of that, athletes have given me, many athletes have given me permission to tell their story, to amplify their story, to talk about it. But it's really unbecoming. It does not ever feel good when I'm doing that. So I I've, I've follow like my mentors saying, even if they give you permission, don't go there. And so some athletes have, like the ones that you're familiar with, like um, Felix Baumgartner, who jumped from 130,000 feet in the Red Bull Stratus Project, you know, he talked about um, his panic attacks and he talked about claustrophobia and he talked about the work that we did, but I'm not going to talk about it, right? And you might think that, well, I'm doing it right now. No, 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 I'm not getting into the particulars of it. But that's why I fired up the podcast to celebrate bright minds and to celebrate those that are on the razor's edge while most people are looking to avoid the razor's edge. Where can, if people want to learn more about you, learn from you, where can we go to learn more about you? So there's a couple places. One, um, if I put like a business hat on for a minute, Coach Carol and I fired up a business together to try to capture um, his intelligence about creating a culture and how to sustain a high-performing culture. And then my interest in how to train the minds of people that want to be great at being a human, right? whatever that means. So mindset training and culture uh, training and methodologies, and that's called winforever.com. And yeah, and so um, you can go there and kind of find out more information about what we're doing there. Uh, if you're interested in the path of mastery in those conversations, it's findingmastery.net. And Coach Carroll was actually on there not long ago. You'll be on there soon. And um, so it's just conversations with switched on human beings about how they've become and what they do to accelerate their craft. What do you mean by mastery? It's a pursuit. It's a path. It's for me, it's what I'm, I started off with a different idea of what I thought mastery was. And now I'm paying attention to mastery because I ask everyone like what it is to them. I think it's exploring the nuances of a craft. 
and also at the same time having great insight about how you interface with that craft. Masters of craft, okay, you and I deal with like frame one to frame two to frame three, okay? Like toss the ball, arm comes up, hit the ball, right? People that are really good, they don't have to think about that anymore. But people that are masterful are playing between those frames and they're expanding those frames in such a way that it feels like a whole different universe that they're in where you and I to the novice mind or the novice eye, we don't even see it. And even if we're good at it, not great, not world-class, we don't understand it. So it's the mastery comes with playing in the nuances, I think. And then mastery of the mind is being having a really sensitive instrument about what is true and what is now. So just for you then, you're in your mid-40s, you have achieved a, a, a high level of uh, notoriety as a consequence of your work mm. uh, with these big-name athletes and, and others. What do you, where do you want to go with your meditation practice, or where do you want to go with your career? This is like two people that spend time doing mindfulness work or meditation. I, I've ebbed and flowed where at times I'm like all in. Like I'm, I'm really structured with my work. And there's times where – your meditation work. Yeah. And then there's times when um, it's like, let me see if I could do like, I don't know, 2,000 moments a day. <laughs> and it's like this eating, breathing, walking, everything, you know. And so I don't know where I'm going with it. You know, I'm still going to spend time in the quiet recesses of single point focus and contemplative mindfulness. And I'm still going to do that for sure. But it's like a, a thousand little – one breaths, a thousand little moments to be present feels really robust to me right now. And do you, so what does your formal practice look like? Yeah, so I've got, I've got, I start my morning in a particular way. Um, a lot of people might know about that. It, morning mindset training. So it's one breath. Sheets are still on. One breath, maybe two, right? If I can, if I can be so bold. <laughs> and then one thought of gratitude, one intention for the day. And then um, I just put my feet on the ground and I just be right where I am. And then, because I don't want to start like, totally chill uh, and then i want to get up and i want to have fire and i want to be on and i want to put the music on i want to run around with my little eight-year-old and and my wife and i just want to have like a, a, just a fun switched on morning and then um what i get to do with many people that i spend time with is i get with them six 12 20 minutes with them so it's almost like this kind of hijack uh, opportunity that i have and then before i go to bed every you're with your people you're working with you're teaching them how to meditate, and that's your meditation. I'm too. getting it in as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, which is like kind of a cheat for the rest of the world. Oh, that's cool. You know, but then at night, uh, I spend time and I sit, and that's where I'll do. How I'll do long? Some, that point's more like six minutes, and somewhere in that range. So you're not doing like hours and hours a day. No, I'm not. But mm -hmm. but you are trying, as it sounds, to infuse it into every moment of the day. I'm trying. Like, I don't know if I'm if I'm up, you know, 16 hours a day. That I'm. Wouldn't that be great? That everything is is like fully aware, fully mindful. So I'm just trying to, um, you know, pay more attention of taking the mountaintop experience of the six minutes, eight minutes, 20 minutes, and taking that into the city. That's the way that I'm thinking about it right now. And what about professionally? What are your goals? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 1.5 billion people. I want to try to touch and impact 1.5 billion people. And the reason that's an important number is because we all have five friends. Mm -hmm. And so then we get to seven, seven billion. And so that's a ridiculous number, you know, and... Um, so there's there's only a couple ways to amplify into such a ridiculous way. You're closer than I am at it, <laughs> but being able to um, help people be more present and to understand that to do so, we need to train our minds. 
And there's lots of ways to do it. Mindfulness certainly is one of them. And so I, I, I love um, to know that somehow I impacted or touched 1.5 billion people to, you know, I'm Italian, but I identify with my Italian roots. And so rising tide floats all boats. And so I just think that we could get a, uh, a shift in um, the way that small relationships work between people when people are more present. It's a nice place to end it. Um, unless you think there's something I f- should have asked that I didn't. Any other point that you want to make that I haven't? I, I want to just say thank you for, for being interested and in having this conversation. I, I've really enjoyed just how authentically honest and eager you, you are to understand. And it's rare. And so I'm grateful to, to have felt that. So thank you. All right. There's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.